Hello and welcome back to another episode of Author Conversations presented by Arcadia Publishing and the History Press. I'm Jonathan Foster. This week I'm speaking with Dale Perelman. Dale's latest book, Newcastle's Cadence Murders, Mystery and the Devil in Northwest Pennsylvania, brings back a curious case that took place in his native Newcastle, Pennsylvania. In the summer of 1978, a mother and her four-year-old were stabbed to death in the quiet town of Newcastle. Police suspected the husband, Luke Cadence, but were unable to find either a weapon or a motive. Sitting in a Lawrence County jail, however, in 1981, convicted serial killer Michael Atkinson accused Frank Coastal, a carny, petty thief, and Satanist, of having an affair with the Cadence husband and participating in the murder. A series of intense trials ensued. As Coastal was convicted of the homicides, and the husband would go on trial as well. Questions surrounding the case gripped the region and grabbed headlines in the Pittsburgh press. Dale, thanks for joining me. This is a different uh, book for you because we talked about it. You. Sure yeah. is. Tell us about the books you've written in the past because you you know you've written about diamonds and you've written about ore. I have. This is actually my eighth book, and my first book was on a famous diamond known as the Kohinoor, which is, uh, that translates to Mountain of Light. And it's in the, um, uh, it's in England, in the Tower of London. And a second book was on the Regent Diamond, which is in the Louvre. And both were Indian diamonds. So I I've go back into a lot of history on um, India and uh, what was Persia would be Iran today, Afghanistan, and it follows the the present time in um, both England and France. And then I wrote a book on centenarians, 100, 100-year-olds who made a difference. And then I did two books. One was entitled Steel, and it was the steel industry from about 1852 to 1902. It began with um, B.F. Jones of Jones and Lachlan Steel, and it went through uh, with Andrew Carnegie and with um, the famous homestead strike and the Johnstown flood, and that ended with, um, I guess it was U.S. Steel, Foundation in 1901. That was this country's first billion-dollar corporation, and I followed it up with Road to Rust, and uh, that uh, that took it to um, the current time and the decline of the steel industry in the states. Uh, but I, I ended it on an optimistic note. Yeah, and another, and then I did an Arcadia book with. Uh, on the Scottish Rite Cathedral in Newcastle. So I've done, and one other was called uh, Lessons My Father Taught Me. Uh, but I've done, this is my fourth book with the History Press. Yeah, and what made you go down this route? What made you do true crime? What made you interested in this story? Well, I actually had been working on this book for probably 25 years ago. And I set it aside, and it just kept dragging me back. And uh, finally, um, I talked to my editor at uh, uh, 
the history press, and I said, do you ever do true crime? And they said, oh, yes, we have a large true crime series. And I told him the story, and he said, send it to me. I said, so I reworked the story, got lots of pictures in it, got 60 pictures, sent it to him, and he said, we love it. So uh, there we have it. That's the Cadence Murders. Yeah, and where were you? Were you in Newcastle Castle during this time? I don't think I even asked that last time we talked. Yes, I uh, came back to Newcastle in 1972. The murder was in 78. And sometime around the early 80s, I was sitting around the swimming pool with a couple of the attorneys who had worked on the case. And I got so fascinated listening to them, I just had to write about it. And uh, I got to be friends with the Prothonotary of Courts. Uh, and uh, she uh, she gave me uh, all the court files, and I read those, and I got even more interested in it. And uh, so, yes, I was back in Newcastle. Uh, I was here during the time of the murder, and this this particular murder has caught the imagination of the city, and uh, I don't know, it's seems to be a very popular subject here. Yeah, so so this morning, as a summer morning, is in 1978, I mean, as a family of four, and as a dad, he's getting up, you know, you think, is, just imagine it, dad getting up, you know, going to work, he's got a wife, he's got two kids, it's, uh, you know, kind of a nuclear family, if you think about it in a way, uh, the way that you used to be described as an American family, but the morning's not going to go... The way you would think about a classic American family's morning going in during this time period, give us a walkthrough of what's going to happen. Well, what happened was, and when the, the, you have a conundrum here. There is a murder that takes place, and the mother, Kathy Cadence, and her five-year-old child, Dawn Cadence, are brutally murdered. Uh, Kathy is shot in the head and stabbed 17 times. Dawn is stabbed 17 times. It's, it's just horrendous what happened. Uh, the husband had left for work, and they called him and said, uh, there's been a terrible tragedy at your house. And he came home, and the police immediately suspected the husband. They thought uh, he didn't act concerned enough. His attorney came a little later and thought he was in shock. So wherever you go in the book, you'll see that there are contrary statements as to what really happened. Uh, the only thing that was concrete was the brutality of the murder itself. And uh, as you get farther and farther into the book, uh, you see that it there are a lot of questions that come up. Yeah, you know, and there are some crimes, you know, details can be you know glossed over, but and you've kind of given us a little bit, and you go into more detail in the book too. And this oh, is an instance, more. you know, where you can't gloss over what happened. You know, there's a murder of the mother and her child. Um, 
you know, were you prepared for what you would uncover when you did this research? Not really. And and actually, just so you know, I had a book signing at Barnes and Noble, and at Barnes and Noble. I refer to another brutal killing that took place in 1975, and that's the Gargas Wither murders, never solved. Uh, and what happened is a, a babysitter and her five-year-old uh, little girl were brutally murdered. And uh, I think there's a, a direct connection. But at the book signing... Uh, that the mother of that five-year-old who was murdered in 1975 came up to me, and we talked, and uh, uh, I tried to tell her I felt that the people who had done that killing were already dead. From, hmm. uh, but I do think there was involvement with that group of murderers and this one as well. So, I mean, it's, I, I tell a story about what I think was a serial killer, mm-hmm. uh, because I think he probably killed five, six people. Uh, one I discuss in the book, uh, the two I allude to, and at the very end, the police believed that there was another one as well, and maybe two. Uh, so we have that, we have... Satanism, uh, which uh, is always interesting. Uh, the one fellow's house looked like a satanic uh, crypt. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it was unbelievable. I wished I could have shown all the pictures from his house in there. Well, let's uh, well, all... let's you know we we won't give a lot of it away you know at all because but I do want, kind of want to talk about these cast of characters you know especially Mike and Frank and then a little bit about Larry too because I think the person you're kind of you know kind of you know referring to a little bit is Mike. Um, and oh, I didn't realize that you had done a you know maybe the suspense since we last talked and that's really I'm glad we're actually getting to talk again now that you've talked about that I'm guessing maybe you're talking about Mike with that. Because there's Mike, who's passed alone, you know, makes him seem like a fit for a crime. And there's Frank, who's kind of a Satanist connection there. But there's so much more to both of them that when you read the book, you're just, you know, it kind of sways you one way or the other on both of them. And there's one you think, well, it's got to be this guy. But then you read more into it and you kind of get, you kind of have, you know, second feelings about one of them or the other. But first of all, with Mike, when you're reading about him, it seems like you have to take whatever he says with a whole shaker of salt instead of a grain of salt. <laughs> Yes, you do. absolutely. He's a proverbial liar. Yeah. Uh, and but, but you're absolutely correct. And what uh, there's so much to this story. Um, you know, I, I had to go to the dentist the day before yesterday, and a woman walked up to me and said, "I have to talk to you." And mm. I said, "Okay." And. Uh, she uh, she uh, said, do you know who I am? And I said, uh, you're the dental hygienist. He's, she said, um, I was the young girl who, after the murder, when Rose Butera found the body, she came to the house. I was the young girl who answered the door at the house. And oh. so we have an arrangement that we're going to talk about this a little bit. 
uh, I have a book signing at the library coming up, and we're going to discuss this in some more detail. She has her own feelings about it because uh, she knew a great deal about you know the husband and uh, the 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 wife. Other people said you should have shown pictures of the wife in the uh, book. Here are the those two. It's it's been fascinating since I've written the book how many people have called me or contacted me and because there's there's even more to the story that has come up um that uh, you know theories and questions it's it's just strange. Uh you do have one murderer, Mike Atkinson and I think he's a, a man without redeeming virtues. I always thought everyone had some redeeming virtue. I can't find any with yeah. Mike. And he just likes to play games, too, with what he's done. Oh, yes. And uh, uh, you've read the book. I mean, can you see any redeeming virtues in him at all? No, and it's, I mean, I like to try to do that i've got i mean i've went through a period of life with me myself too where i kind of turned cynical then i tried my wife kind of called me out on it so i tried not to be that way but with him no i can't i can't either and frank at least had a terrific sense of humor uh it was interesting uh, i've met frank on i think three different occasions in prison i only met uh, mike one time and uh, even then, he was uh, non-communicative, surly, uh, difficult. Uh, and uh, just as an example, his warden said he was the most difficult prisoner he's ever had. Now, that uh, <laughs> that tells you the story of Mike. Uh, but... Uh, you know, it's that's that's one reason I set the book aside. I love to have a redeeming, uh, to find some redeeming value in a character, and he had none. I mean, there's just some people you're not going to find. Thankfully, it's few and far between in the human race, but there's just some folks out there. I guess you're not going to find anything like that. And I mean, when you talk about Mike. It's talking, you know, when you were talking about there's some, you know, the warden saying that he was the, you know, worst, you know, prisoner he ever had. That's not he wouldn't be the first one to say that. I mean, he he got transferred from one prison prison to another because the warden was trying to look out for him, but he turned and betrayed the other warden. You know, stabbed him absolutely, absolutely, and and I do believe. And these are just little breadcrumbs of giving people. There's so much more to this story. Oh, there is. and But I think he qualifies as a serial killer. Not not the typical serial killer who has a single fashion of doing it, but, say, a serial predator killer. Um, uh, what he did, uh, and I do tell the story in some detail, uh, to the uh, senior citizen woman, Rosie Puzz, in Elwood, Pennsylvania, is horrendous. It's awful. Yeah. You know, this wasn't his his first crime. No. This, you know, he he was a criminal at twenty, 
and uh, he just didn't get caught. And Mike brings himself under suspicion. He's already sitting in jail. Oh, yes. He's the one who started talking uh, and and brought the the case to a head. That's yeah. He's just uh, he wants to. He has this demented spotlight. He wants it feels like he. Well, he's uh, he was an interesting character study. That's for sure. Yeah. Now, Frank, I know later in the book you point out that maybe he could have been gone after as part of a witch hunt due to his sexuality or devil worship. Um, yeah, but it seems he he would be in jail today, anyhow, Johnny, and I'll tell you why. He um, he was a homosexual, but he had uh, sex with um, uh, some boys who were not yet eighteen, which would qualify them as minors, mm-hmm. which would uh, probably have put him in jail for a long time just for that. Yeah. Uh, whether or not you believe Mike and he was involved in the crime, uh, I I think he was. Uh, I'm pretty sure he was, but uh, I'm not a hundred percent sure he was. He says he wasn't. Um, you know, he told me this on three separate occasions, but. Uh, I think he was. I th- I think he was a schizophrenic, and uh, maybe this was a different side of him. Which is, I'm not a psychiatrist or even a psychologist, but it's something to think about. Yeah, but even you know, like you said, he would have been in jail today because of his. He, you know, he had a tendency to, and he had this something about his personality that attracted others towards him. It seemed yes, like, he did. especially like you said, younger people, younger, you know, younger people, both sexes, but especially younger boys. Uh, what was it about him that attracted people towards him? Well, he he seemed a lot like Rasputin, the Russian mystic. Uh, who um, attracted the czarist nobility mm-hmm. and and had the kind of a power and aura? Uh, I've had people say he could cast spells, and they still believe that that he had the ability to cast spells on people, and uh, that he had a power about him. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I. He he did have that. Uh, when I talked to him, he seemed very, very mellow. Uh, you would not think that he had a mean bone in his body. but uh, And nor did he seem to have any mystical powers. Uh, of course, he'd been in jail for a while, too. So, uh, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's just... A lot of surprising things, twists and turns in the books, too. Uh, there is another suspect, and that's going to be, you know, they always say, it's that old saying, the spouse is always a suspect. Absolutely. And Larry's going to go to, I didn't realize that, yeah. So Larry is still a suspect, apparently. Um, he's going to have a trial. I'm not going to give away what happens with his trial, either. Um, but how are the three main suspects kind of connected? Can you give us a little insight into that? Well, you you have two stories. One... 
that there were some drugs, and the wife took the drugs and either used them or flushed them down the toilet. Uh, I've talked to people after the fact who say that she did use drugs, and I've talked to people who said she did not use drugs. So, uh, but that's hearsay. Uh, The husband had a checkered past as well. The the husband had exposed himself uh, at least on four occasions and actually spent a few months in jail for exposing himself. So he had a checkered past. And Atkinson said that he... And uh, and some witnesses have said that he and Frank Costell had a sexual affair. Uh, so that's that's a second type of um, uh, reason that could have happened. So we have a argument over drugs. Mike said he paid a certain amount of money for some Percodons and some other drugs, and. To witnesses have said that Larry and Frank had a relationship. So it could be either of those reasons might have tied them together. Uh, I do find it difficult that Kathy Cadence, several witnesses said she always kept the doors locked. The doors were open that day because no one broke in when she was killed. So someone either by accident left the door open and uh, that may be one one thing that happened or someone may have gotten a key or the door may have been left unlocked. And it's hard to imagine that on that particular day when the door was unlocked, these two strange fellows, or three, because there's a third, at least, who's involved, who is deceased, uh, would happen in, do this brutal killing, and leave. There had to be more to it than that. So, um, that's, these are the questions that the reader gets to play with. Yeah, because there's a whole, I'm not even going to bring up the guy who's not around, who doesn't even make it to the trials that we're not going to talk about there's so much more into it but there's two guys i do want to bring up because they make this they make it almost seem like hbo's true detective series um and that's detective and tell me if i get it right because i didn't say his name last time i just said his nickname i'm gonna try it is it Gigliano? try gig i said gig last time i want to try Gigliano. Gigliano. is it right no, you're not. You're close. Ah. Gagliardo. Gagliardo. And, Come on, Johnny. Now, remember I said to you, I did a book signing, mm-hmm. and uh, people came in and talked to me specifically. A woman came in and said to me, hi, I'm Selfie. Well, Selfie, and I'm in Chapter 3, Selfie was the wife of Gagliardo who was nicknamed Gig. She came in, and her son was with her and said, and I'm Joe, I didn't have a speaking part. (laughs) But I referred to him in the book. And uh, they came in and uh, uh, bought copies for the grandchildren of the book. And uh, we had a very nice talk. And 
uh, it turns out that Frank Gagliardo's sister was Helen Morgan, who was the prothonotary of courts, who gave me all the trial records. And then uh, the other gentleman was nicknamed Babe Abraham. Mm-hmm. His name was Charles or Chuck Abraham. They were both very nice guys. I went to visit um, Mike Atkinson with those two guys in Huntington Prison. And I spent a lot of time with them. That's where I got many of the stories came not just from police files, but from their recollections of what happened. And uh, if there were heroes in in the book, those two would be the heroes. Oh yeah, absolutely. And they played yeah. good. And they played good guy, bad guy. Uh, but they were. And and the funny thing was. Frank was more the bad guy in person, but he was the happier guy in real life. Yeah, because he was able to compartmentalize everything. He compartmentalized it. He had a very happy marriage. Uh, Chuck, I think, uh, brooded more inside, uh, but he was he was charming guy, uh, very nice fellow. Uh, I was in the jewelry business for. 35 years and he loved to work on watches he would take them apart and repair them he set up a little watch repair center in his in his house and that's how he would relax uh but yeah they were they were both i think reasonably good detectives and the, the problem that they didn't use dna evidence like they do now and they were the chief was so sure that the husband was guilty that they didn't really check the cigarettes for um, DNA for uh, what exact type each person smoked. I think if they had been used a little more care that the case might have been a little easier to, to work on. Yeah, and how so the murders how long between the actual murder and the last trial? How many years? Well, were we the the murder was seventy eight. The last trial was beginning of um, uh, eighty two. Um, so about four you, years here. Yeah, and and you had you had Atkinson. Uh, actually, he was arrested originally on a, a rape of a minor charge and he escaped to New York State and to Syracuse and he came back and he went to Elwood and in Elwood uh, he, he the story was well let me go to the escape because that doesn't give too much away uh, he was picked up by the state police um, they picked up um, uh, his accomplice, Tanner, who really was a secondary accomplice, picked him up, and he went to jail. When they picked Mike up, Mike said, I have a son in in the house. You can't leave this little boy alone. Let me get my son, and then you can arrest me. And he went in the house and ran out the back door with his son, 
and escaped and, and went to Syracuse for a while, came back and moved to um, Elwood. And that's where he killed this Rosie Puzz and he, he robbed minor things from her house, you know, a black and white television, pots and pans. Uh, she had $1,200 in cash hidden in an envelope under the sink. He he didn't even find that. And then he burned down her apartment. Uh, and then he was arrested probably a week later for her murder. And so he's sitting in jail on waiting trial on that murder. And uh, at the time, they still had the death penalty. And he later agreed to present state's evidence against Costal in exchange for life imprisonment instead of the death penalty. So, uh, which is kind of interesting. And uh, so he sat in jail for a while, waiting trial. You feel like somebody you, like is always looking for some kind of angle. Oh yeah, and and the story's so interesting. You have um, an attorney whose license was revoked in the middle of a trial, mm -hmm. uh, and I thought that was an interesting story. Uh, it there's just so many moving parts to this tale. I mean, it isn't. A direct bad guy, we caught him, put him in jail, and that's the end of it. There's a lot more to this story than that. I don't want to give too much away. Well, no, you really haven't. But I do want to say this. If, you know, when you after this next library event comes up and you have, you know, because you're doing events now and you're having people come up and tell you things, uh, just shoot me an email. And if you have people, you know, more things come up and you want to come back and do a podcast with some of these uh uh, people, and you have more to say, you want to say, um, that would be you, interesting. let me know, and we'll we'll record another podcast and, uh, and send it you back know, up again. You know, we have that unsolved crime where I think that uh, Mike Atkinson was the killer. In fact, the father of the little girl who was killed remarried and he had a stepdaughter, and she spent two days going, she was a lovely lady, she spent two days at my house going through the police notes uh, because the state police were convinced that Mike Atkinson was involved in that crime as well. And, uh, and then you have two missing people who have never, whose bodies have never been found. And uh, the police were convinced that Mike Atkinson, <coughs> pardon me, had something to do with that as well. But uh, and I've spoken to some of these people <coughs> since the book was published. So, yeah, very interesting. Yeah, I may, I may very well call you and take you up on that. Yeah, that'd be you know interesting to talk to them, and maybe we can get this out there. And if somebody has some more information, maybe I'll be able to come forward with it. Yeah, I, I agree with you. That would be that would be interesting. Thanks again to Dell and to you, the audience, for joining me. 
You can find Dale's book online at ArcadiaPublishing.com and at your local bookstores. Remember to like our podcast and to rate the podcast on whichever platform you choose to listen on. And please do share the podcast with your friends if you enjoy it. If you have subject suggestions for future episodes, send me an email at ArcadiaAuthorConversations at gmail.com. I want to again thank Jay and Bill's unnamed band projects for our theme song. You can find them on Facebook at Jay and Bill's Unnamed Band Project. I'll be back again next week with another fascinating history author. See you then.